In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. The word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed how different communities have different ways of describing and understanding beauty or what is pleasing to the eye? Have you ever noticed how some cultures might say that something is beautiful that as you look at it, you might just not get I think we see this all over the place. So, uh, for instance, if you were to go online, you could look up the uh, African-Ethiopian tribe, uh, the Suri people, where we're told that there in that community, women will actually remove their bottom two teeth on purpose, right? And they will put a plate inside their lip, and they'll gradually uh, put a bigger and bigger plate until their lip can basically hold like a platter, right? And this is the value that they place in that. When she gets married, the bigger the plate, the bigger the dowry. Like a small plate, you're talking like 40 cows. You get a big plate in there, you're talking like upwards of 60 cows. That's beauty. Uh, You might have heard before about Chinese women who for uh, close to a thousand years have actually bound their feet because they value small feet as being small, I mean as being beautiful, to the point that if you look at um, some Chinese women's feet of the past, they're actually the same size as an iPhone. And I'm not talking the 6S, I'm talking the small one, right? Like that's small, and, and that is beauty in their culture. Well, our culture, we have our own standards of beauty, don't we? And we can see this, that that there's certain things that we see as beautiful. So, uh, for instance, if you were to uh, look it up, you would find out that this past year, 2016, Americans spent $16.9 billion on plastic surgery. Why? Because we we value beauty. And, And maybe we disagree about what that thing is that we're calling beauty, but I think in all of these cases, what you see is that there is something that just seems to be a basic human need for beauty and a desire to be beautiful. Well, we see that, I believe, uh, all over the place in the Bible as well. Here's the problem. I think that so often the places that we are looking for beauty are the wrong places, the places that God doesn't direct us. Uh, So often we are looking at the physical when God is trying to drive us towards the spiritual. Uh, You'll remember last week that that's kind of where we left off with Israel and Judah, right? So Judah, uh, we're told that they were putting their pride, uh, they were haughty and proud of their looks and the beautiful things that they had found in the nations to make them beautiful before the nations, and God sent war to devastate them and left them, the daughters of Zion, uh, seven to one looking for a guy who would actually give them a new name and take away their shame. Well, this week what we're going to find is is that God actually shows up and gives them an answer to the thing that they looked for. He he is sending them the answer to their pursuit of beauty, and he gives it to them in the form of this branch of Yahweh that is glorious and beautiful. And so we're going to be looking at God's response this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. We are right back in the middle of our uh, looking at Jesus series in the book of Isaiah. And uh, here what we're going to see this morning is that God is now speaking to his remnant. Now here's, here's something that's great. Uh, you'll remember that this section began in chapter 2 with an end of days picture of what that last day would look like for the nations. In between, things look really bad. And at the end, here in this last little section that closes this section off, we see another image of the last of days where God is giving His people some hope amidst this promise of devastation. Hopefulness, devastation, more hope. I don't think it's chronological, but what we find here is is a picture of what God has promised for His people. I think 
Walter Brueggemann got it right, speaking of Isaiah 4 in this section. He says, the book of Isaiah already in these early chapters sees that there is a coming crisis and possibility of Judaism beyond the devastation of the exile. And here's the hope that he gives the people of Judah. There is a day coming where God is going to restore your fortunes. In other words, Isaiah tells Judah, things will get worse before they get better. But they will get better. That's the hope. And so here's the good news this morning. We're going to see this, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, our big overall point. It's this, that God will make His people more beautiful and glorious than they can make themselves. I think that's what He wants them to see in these verses. God can make His people more beautiful and glorious than they can make themselves. That's God's good news for us today. Now, we'll see this in a number of ways, but first, look with me uh, in verse 2 where we see uh, what, is descri- what I describe as a branch with a crown. A branch with a crown. Look there again with me at verse 2 and what it says. It says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now, what or who is this branch that they should be on the lookout for? See, you'll remember Isaiah 2 showed us the nations flooding to Mount Zion to worship God on that day. Isaiah 3 just showed us that on a day, a day of the Lord, that the daughters of Zion would be humiliated and humbled, right? Probably through exile to Babylon. But here in 4, 2-6, Isaiah foresees out of this rubble that he just told them about, a branch of the Lord that shall shoot up, which is beautiful and glorious. People have interpreted this branch in a couple of ways. Some people have seen this branch as a branch with leaves, and others have seen this branch as a branch with a crown. Uh, Now, in other words, what that means is, uh, some, when they see this branch, uh, what they have understood it is, is that God has come back and He has blessed nature. And so, you know, the the trees spring up to life, and they are fruitful. Uh, They're not war ravaged anymore. Uh, They are not destitute anymore. The fruitful land has returned. And that fits the second half of this verse where you see the fruit of the land will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So that's why some have looked at this and they've noticed, okay, we we do see that the branch in the Bible, sometimes it's a, a description of this coming Messiah from the tribe of David. But here, I mean, just looking at the second part of the verse, it's really clear that he must be talking about a branch with leaves. What's interesting, though, is this is not just any old branch. Did you notice that? This is the branch of the Lord Yahweh. And catch this. The branch of the Lord never describes literal growth of plants and trees elsewhere in the Old Testament. And as Alec Moyer says, it is always elsewhere a title pointing to the Messiah in His kingly and priestly offices. See, see, branch is a family metaphor, right? You've got like the family tree that maybe you've traced out. Maybe you've done that yourself. Well, here God says, I've got a family tree. Now, here's what, what I think is fascinating. A lot of things here, but Jeremiah 23.5, he speaks of the righteous branch of David. And I believe the, the righteous branch of David is also this, this branch of Yahweh, this branch of the Lord that's spoken of in this text. I think it's the same branch. Now, the righteous branch of David, of course, originates in David, but he also, I believe here we are told, originates in Yahweh, the covenant God of David. See, this beautiful and glorious branch would spring forth from both Yahweh and David. Of course, we know this, this to be King Jesus, right? who is both fully God and fully man, being born of the tribe of David and conceived of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, this is Jesus who is a branch with a crown. He is unlike any man that you have ever seen before. That's what this text is pointing us towards. This this man, unlike anyone you have ever seen before. He's not like the prophet Muhammad, right? He's not just a man who had a vision. This is the God-man who actually is God. That means that Jesus was uniquely all that it meant to be fully God. Even when He humbled Himself and taking on human flesh, He never relinquished any of His godness. Now don't miss this. 
beauty is really all about what is precious to the senses. And according to the Bible, we were all in in one degree born ugly in this sense. We were born with sin natures. So if you read through Romans 1-3, to God tells us that sin and ugliness is a, a human problem. It's not just something that Gentiles struggle with. It is a problem that Jews are born with. So there, God tells us that He looked down on all of humanity, every one of us, all humans that ever lived, in our sin and our shame, both Jews and Gentiles, and He said to all of humanity, this was His verdict, all have sinned and fallen short of My glory. That means My glorious presence should not dwell with you because you are not deserving. You are sinners. In fact, catch this. He goes on to say in Romans, your best deeds on your best day are filthy rags. Does that sound attractive? It's grosser if you look it up. Our best deeds, the most beautiful thing that we could produce or that has been done, that we have done, all of those things, God says, are ugly before me. See, God had not seen anything that pleased Him about man for some time. It's only His mercy and grace that permitted us. But when Jesus arrived... When Jesus arrived, we find in Matthew 1 that He says, let me give you a family tree. He comes from the line of David, this this King, this Messiah, Jesus. But not only that, we get to Matthew 3 where God rents the heavens. He opens them up at His baptism, right? Where He's being anointed publicly as the King. And there we find that He's not just the Son of David. God says, this is My beloved Son with whom what? I am well pleased. He had not been pleased for a long time. But when he sees this man, Jesus, the Messiah, fully God and fully man, he says, I am very pleased, very happy. He loves what he sees in his son, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is beautiful and glorious to God because he is God with us in human flesh. He's not a a way to God. He is the only way to God, and He is very God for sinners who abandoned God and were cut off. But catch this. Jesus isn't just beautiful and glorious to God the Father and God the Spirit. He's also beautiful and glorious to the survivors in the second half of this verse. But here's a question. What does a branch with a crown have to do with the second part of the verse? where it says, and the fruit of the land shall be the honor and pride of the survivors of Israel. You know, what is this fruit? Well, you'll notice that the promise of sweet fruit of the land is for the survivors of Israel. Not the conquerors or the victors, but the survivors. And I'm guessing this message, when it dropped on their ears for the first time, was probably around about the time that... They had been living in peace and prosperity, maybe during Uzziah's reign of 52 years. Things were probably going well. They didn't expect to hear bad news because the news had been pretty good. And here, I think that this is probably pointing towards a day that's going to be bad. Now, just imagine this. Things are going pretty good at work. Your boss shows up. Shows up out of the blue and he says, listen, uh, I need to call everyone in for a meeting and I've got some news for you. Uh, I want you to know that uh, whoever survives today is getting a bonus. And what are you thinking to yourself? Am I going to survive today? (laughs) Right? Like you're not thinking about the bonus as much as you're thinking about the job. Like what, what does this have to do with me? Well, I think that's kind of the way that this would have hit the ears of the Jews. Right? God comes and speaks. It seems like things have been going well. They have prosperity, things seem to be comfortable, and all of a sudden, God says, hey, guess what? Uh, There are going to be a few survivors, and I am going to present you with a glorious and beautiful branch of the Lord, and it is going to be fruitful with you. And they're thinking, well, who is it that's going to survive, right? See, I think here Isaiah actually tempers Judah's excitement for this future day with a reminder of the judgment that not many would escape. Even in the celebration, he says, look, I need, to, I need to make sure you understand what's happening here. Like, judgment is coming. Survival is real. But catch this. We haven't seen this day fully, I don't think. See, I believe that it will come fully with the return of Christ. I think this day that we're talking about, we've seen a, a partial uh, portion of this in the sense that we see the nations already coming to faith in Christ. M- most of us, if not all of us, are a testimony of that. 
But I believe there is more yet to come in this day. On that day, they will see Jesus as glorious and beautiful, just as God does. But beauty here, I believe, speaks of the comeliness of Christ, the Messiah that they looked forward to. He is pleasant to the eyes and the hearts of the surviving daughters of Zion who just lost everything that they lived for and sought to make themselves beautiful with. Here we find they will be destitute, possessing a heap of rubble, shameful and nameless, when the beauty of the Lord will arise full of glory. And a word, this word for glory, speaks of the very presence of God that's going to be with them. But catch what happens. This barren land that had been left by war, he says it's going to spring forth with life and fruit. I mean, do you see the curse reverse that this king ushers in? I mean, that's what's happening. This king is undoing all that has been lost. Did you see how God created us in Genesis 1 to exercise dominion over the earth and be fruitful and multiply and fill it? Do you know that God made you for that? That's what God has made us for. Have dominion over the earth, be fruitful, and multiply it. And here what we find is, is really a reversal of what happened in Genesis 3 when man sinned against God. God told man, catch this, you were made to be fruitful and multiply, but now whenever you work in the ground because of your sin, it's affected even the soil so that it's going to produce thorns and thistles rather than the fruit that you want. But here we have a picture of the reversal. God says the ground is going to be fruitful again. So don't miss this curse reverse. When the Messiah shows up, the devastated land becomes fruitful. Death is replaced with life. And while those daughters of Zion placed all of their attention on and confidence in seeking to make themselves beautiful according to worldly standards, that didn't take into account how God viewed them. They did not care how God looked upon them in their sin and their shame until they lost everything. And that's when they started paying attention. See, they cared about how the world looked at them. They did not care about how God looked at them. Brothers and sisters, that's always, I believe, a a healthy warning for us to be reminded that what matters most is how God sees you and how God sees us. How does God see you this morning? See, here what we find is they receive something better than their worldly honor and pride that was stripped from them. They received the beautiful and glorious branch of Yahweh, the Messiah, who would give them a new identity. What a better day and a better name than anything they could create for themselves. You know, we have the same picture of a king showing up and then the fruit returning elsewhere. So if you look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a similar vision in Ezekiel 34 where he speaks of a good shepherd from David who would show up. And after that, once he shows up, the same time, we all of a sudden see the tree sprouting fruit again. Why is that? Because this king would usher in a new creation that would restore all that had been lost. See, when this king arrives, he restores the fortunes of his people, giving them an otherworldly, divine, eternal, radiant beauty, unlike anything that they've seen before, removing their shame and giving them a new name. That is the one that those seven women ultimately needed. They needed Jesus. See, this branch doesn't merely bear its own fruit. He restores fruit to the entire land. That's where the fruit's coming from. It's not just one branch with a little bit of fruit. The whole land responds to what happens with this branch. Now catch this. I really believe that every human desires to be beautiful, except for my son Jack. He says he wants to be handsome. You ever told your son he's beautiful and he says, Dad, I'm handsome? Like, you're right. Good point. Point well taken. But we don't merely seek to make ourselves more beautiful and attractive through plastic surgery, do we? I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we're looking to make ourselves more attractive. And usually it's, it's physical, right? So uh, we're going to the gym and we're trying to work out more. Uh, you know, we want to maybe look like uh, models or, or the actors, Some starve themselves. Others spend lots of money they don't have on nice clothes, jewelry, flashy cars. Some of us spiritually try to make ourselves look better to God based on our own works, right? We want God to receive us because what we have done for Him, forgetting that everything that we receive is ultimately His fruit anyway. See, some of you... And some of us desire beauty for different reasons. And maybe it's because you long for companionship or maybe you've noticed the power that beauty can exert over others. But none of these things are bad 
in and of themselves, these things that we, we love and seek value in, but any one of these things could become a bad God if we give it control over our lives. And we begin to find our identity in it rather than our identity in God. But the reality is that God sent Jesus to give you and me the beauty that we all were made to desire. And that's the beauty that we desire in the eyes of God himself. So you want to be beautiful and lovely before your God, before your creator. You know that paradise was lost when we fell. You sense that. You sense the fact that you don't look as you desire to before your God who made you. But catch this. Here's the promise. God says in verses 3 to 4, He gives us this image of God restoring and purifying His remnant. In other words, God will provide for His people what they long for. He will give it to them. And we see this in verses 3 to 4. Look there with me again. And as you look there, let me just ask you, did you know that God actually has always had a zeal for the purity of His people? Did you know that? He has a zeal for His people being holy. God does. There's no one that has a desire for His people to be holy like God does. Sin is ugly to God. And holiness is beautiful in His sight. But verses 3-4 to tell us that God actually disciplines His people to make His aspirational goals for their purity actual. Right? So He has disciplined them so that He can make His aspirational desires and goals for their their holiness, actual. Look at verses 3-4 to and how he says it. This is what he says. He says, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. See, here we see, I think, a few things about the nature of what God does with this remnant. One, did you notice that he gives them a new name? Now, you'll remember that God speaks of his remnant often in the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, Paul picks up on this in Romans 9, 6, when he says, not all of Israel is truly of Israel, right? In other words, not all of physical Israel is spiritually God's. There is not everyone that is part of the physical nation actually has put their faith in in God, their trust in Him, have identified with God. And so the remnant are those who we are told God calls to Himself and preserves for Himself. Don't miss that. The remnant are those who God calls to Himself and preserves for Himself. So you'll remember in 1 King 19, we get an image of this, this remnant, where Elijah has just called down, he has prayed down fire from heaven and defeated the hundreds of the, the priests of Baal, right? He is, he is just done basically like pretty much as much as you can do to show the power of God this side of the return of Jesus. And as he does that, we find in the very next chapter that he's running from a woman, Jezebel, right? And he's hiding and he's scared. And he says in, in 1 Kings 19, God, uh, I am running for my life and I only I, I am left. In other words, it's just me. Nobody, you don't have anybody else but me, and things are not looking good. And you'll remember that God, he comes and he cares for Elijah, and he speaks to him a little bit. And then at the end, he says, and by the way, your math's off. I have 7,000 that haven't yet bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, I have preserved a multitude that you don't even know about. I am at work in places that you do not see. You're discouraged, but you don't see the full picture like I do. I will always preserve a people for my glory. I will win in the end. It's not dependent on you, Elijah, the things that you see or the things that you do. I am the God of glory. I will bring about all that I have promised. You can count on that. And that's exactly the the theology that we get from this word remnant. It's a word that says that God never gives up on His people and God never loses. God will keep His word and He will bring about all that He has promised. We will persevere to the end, brothers and sisters, because He preserves us. The hand of God protects us. He does not let us go. He doesn't lose His grip. He never slips. Our God will hold us fast. That's that's the rich theology of the remnant. God loves and keeps his own. In other words, this, this is a beautiful word. It is a scary word because not all remain, but it is a hopeful word for those who do. Because did you see who remains here? Who is it that remains? Who does God 
preserve. Who is it that perseveres to the end? Did you see that? It's some of the daughters of Zion. Now, who are the daughters of Zion? Are they like really beautiful and holy and righteous? No, they aren't saved because they are good people. They are saved because God is good. Did you notice that these daughters of Zion, they were just described in chapter 3? These were those who had been putting their value. They had been looking to all kinds of other places for beauty and value than God. They had built their identities on all kinds of worldly things you'll find in that chapter, like money and armies and idols and and all of those things. And God says, you who are idolaters, sinners, and filthy folks, I want you to know this. I'm going to give you a new ID that's labeled holy. That is going to be who you are. You're going to be holy. You're going to be my possession. You can go ahead and change your Facebook status, right? Right? You're in a relationship. Like things have changed. I am your God and you are my people. Uh, You've been restored. So do you find, do you feel the astonishing reality that's going to take place here? Maybe we haven't really wrestled with the holiness of God and our place as sinners and the way those two things go together. But here what we find is our holy, holy, holy God will make sinners holy when this branch with the crown sprouts up. I mean, that's a promise. See, the sin-laden idolaters, they looked for a husband to give them a new name in Isaiah 4.1. And when their words and their worlds fell apart, here we find that they are going to be called holy. That's the name I give you. They will be consecrated or, or claimed by God for God's service to make Him known. And doesn't this really remind us of God's original intentions for Israel? You'll remember in Exodus 19.5 that God promised to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Israel's not faithful in this text, but God is. God is faithful. And on that day, they will not put proud confidence in themselves and others. No, they will find their identity in their holy God. Now, Christian, catch this. Peter says these promises... These promises of making them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, we are already experiencing them as believers in Christ. Isn't that what he says in 1 Peter 2.9? There he says, but you, speaking of Jewish and Gentile believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I don't have time to linger here, but just take note that God's provision of holiness precedes our response of holiness. Did you notice that? This is just, I think, life-altering the more that we understand this. God's provision of holiness precedes our response of holiness. In other words, God says, I have made you holy, now go and be holy. That is so much better than God coming to you and saying, I want you to be holy, holy, holy. So holy. You need to pick yourself up and be as holy as you can be. And if you are really holy, I'm talking about like A plus holy. If you are like Mach 5 holy, I am going to actually declare you holy if you can measure up to that. Is that what God does with us? Not at all. God says, I make you holy. And then he says, now go and be holy as I have made you holy. See, holiness is a gift that has been given to us. Holiness is a calling that we have been called to that God never leaves us alone in. Now, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's grounded in this, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to act for His good pleasure. See, God is undergirding all of our pursuits of holiness. Our holiness, our activities of holiness, all begin with what God has done, is doing, and will do. Isn't that an encouragement? We are not left alone in our holiness. So this text isn't saying you need to be better. Because, I mean, did you see chapter 3? Y'all are horrible. No, God says, catch this. You are the daughters of Zion. Nobody wanted you. And I gave you a new name above every name. I have changed who you are. Your future is different. You will live differently starting today because of who I am. And what a promise that comes from God. Our working is always grounded in His work. 
See, God has made us holy through a new covenant that we're going to celebrate today that comes to us in the blood of Jesus Christ by virtue of our union with Christ. So that when He calls us to be holy, He has made us holy already. So if you try to make yourself holy without depending on the prior work of God's grace and His present activity in your life, uh, let me just let you know you're going to crash and burn. Maybe that's why you're discouraged today. Uh, You've been trying to obey God, but you've been trying to do it without God. Right? You have not been spending time in prayer asking for His Spirit to lead God and direct you. You've not been spending time in God's Word asking for God to show you the way to be a light before your steps and before your paths. You haven't been spending time with God's people, with God's leadership, seeking to be encouraged and led. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, like, why is it that I'm struggling to live a holy life? Well, it's because you've been trying to live your Christianity alone in a closet, and that's not the way that God has made us to be. God has given us fresh resources in His Spirit to make us holy. See, that's not the way grace works. God makes us positionally holy in Christ when we put our faith in Him. And then the real work of the new creation begins as we progressively become more holy and more holy until we come before Jesus in death or His second coming. If that's you, and you, need to, and you haven't put your faith in Jesus today, and you want, you want to be in on this deal, then put your faith in Christ, because He will change your life. Don't leave without talking to me or someone else about it. Because if God doesn't make us holy, catch this, we will not be holy. Now, that's what we find uh, later in this text, where we see, secondly, the remnant perseveres because God preserves them. The remnant perseveres because God preserves them. Did you see that? You just, just notice how he describes the future of these holy ones. Did you see what he says about them? He says, first, they've been recorded for life in Jerusalem. They've been recorded or written down for life in Jerusalem. Now, maybe that sounds familiar to you. You, you see Jesus, you see God writing down people's names in the Bible, Right? In all kinds of different ways. So you, you'll remember that Moses speaks of a book that people's names seem to be written in in Exodus 32 where he asked God to blot him out of the Lamb's book of, of this book of life. I'm not going to say it's the Lamb's book of life yet. But this book of life, he says, uh, you know, I want you to blot my name out if, if you can't forgive these folks for their sins. Uh, we also see a, another uh, understanding of the book in Daniel. Daniel actually speaks of two books. So in Daniel 12, he talks about a book of life. And then in Daniel 7, he speaks of a book of judgment where people's names are written down. And in this book, it seems to have eternal ramifications. So Moses is seeing it kind of as an earthly life that it affects. But here in Daniel, he says this has eternal ramifications. I believe Isaiah here actually sounds a lot like the Apostle John in Revelations 13.8. There he, like Isaiah, says there's a relationship between those who remain, the remnant, and their names being written in God's book. And if this is the Lamb's book of life, remember what Revelation 13.8 tells us when it says that those who are given over to the beast, that's not good, that's bad. He says, those of them... Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You catch that? It's bad if your name isn't in the book of life. And when was that book written? Before the foundation of the world was laid, right? In other words, uh, this remnant perseveres because God perseveres them. Uh, Paul says the same kind of thing in Ephesians 4, 4 without a book, where he says of believers, he chose us in him, being Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The remnant perseveres because God God perseveres them. See, the, the point of all these texts is that those in the book persevere to the end. They put their confidence in God through trials and tribulations of all kinds. And nothing can separate them from the love of God. In fact, many of you have probably experienced, and I know you have, have experienced great sufferings. I think those great sufferings all fit under the category of trials and tribulations of various kinds. Fiery trials, as Peter speaks of them, that will come upon you. And what God says to you in the same way that He would have said to this remnant is this. I know that these these experiences scare you, they terrify you, and they're terrifying. 
and you will make it to the end because I'm your God. You're not going to make it because you're going to make it in your own strength. I know that you can't imagine that you'll make it through some of the things that you'll make it through. But I am your God, and you're going to do things that you cannot imagine for the glory of my name. And people will notice that you have the Holy Spirit working in and through you because of the things that you go through. I know some of you have been through all kinds of fiery trials. Uh, You have lost your spouse. You have lost your children. Some of you have had family that have alienated you for your faith in Christ. Uh, Others of you have gotten cancer or other diseases. You have lost your home. Your, Your kids don't care about Jesus. Maybe that's the worst thing possible for some of us. Or you didn't get into the school that you wanted to go to. Your friends have abandoned you. Or a Christian somewhere along the line has abused you. Maybe multiple folks who have proclaimed Christ. Maybe not Christians. But hear the grace of God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Why? Because God Himself preserves those who persevere to the end. That's why we make it. It's not because God gives us, doesn't give us more than we can handle. Like, how many of you have experienced more than you can handle? Like, this week, right? Like, I'm like, I can't handle this. And I run to God, and I'm dependent upon God, because I know that though it's too much for me to handle, it's not too much for Him. Right? See, that's the way that God perseveres us to the end. That's why we make it. It's because God can handle it. We are utterly dependent on the omnipotent hand of the Ancient of Days to carry us through, because He has written the end from the beginning. And that, that's a future that you can bank on. But there's another thing we see about this remnant, a third thing, and that's this. The remnant is holy because God cleanses them. The remnant is holy because God cleanses them. Look there at verse 4, again, at what he says. He says in verse 4, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, a spirit of burning. Of course, this is the reason that they're able to be called holy. It's because God makes them holy. The question is, how does God make them holy here? Well, you'll notice that it's through a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning that cleanses them. See, this, this washing and cleansing that takes place is interesting. So the, the event of the washing is certain, even though the timing is uncertain. In other words, we know that they'll be washed, but when does this happen? Well, uh, Alec Moyer speaks of this, and he says this word for washing, it's actually used 73 times in the Old Testament, and of those, 52 are actually speaking of a kind of ceremonial washing that goes on in the temple. And the filth speaks of, of vomit or uncleanness inside. I hate vomit, don't you? Like, I almost dry heave when I say it. And cleanse here, it means to rinse off the outward uncleanness of the bloodstains of social violence, like bloodshed. So one is sort of an inward cleaning, the other is an outward cleaning. It's a pervasive cleaning. The picture is that of a complete cleansing of the remnant from the pervasive effects of sin. Don't miss how serious God is about cleansing the daughters of Zion here. You know, sometimes we think about clean as being clean as being a nice thing. Here, notice what happens. It is a spirit of judgment and burning that comes to cleanse them. Now what is that? I think it actually describes the war that would come with Babylon when they would come to take his people into exile. I think it's at least that. It could be more than that. I think there are other days of the Lord that come. But this initial picture at least deals with a a nation of horrible Babylonians who were not nice at war coming in and devastating Jerusalem and leaving them destitute and devastated. And catch this, God and His Holy Spirit, this is a picture that He is serious about the holiness of the people of God. God allowed Babylon to come because God cares about His holiness. We are sinners saved by grace to be God's holy people. So let me ask you again, are you serious about the purity of God's people And are you as serious about purity as God is? Is what is beautiful to God what is beautiful to you? I think that's an important question to ask. Do we look at the holiness of God and see that as something that is glorious and beautiful because God says it is? Or do we say, you know, it looks looks kind of hard and unattractive to me? Brothers and sisters, holiness is glorious and beautiful to God and in reality because God has created reality. So let me give you a few quick thoughts about holiness. Believers in holiness. 
A few things to remember. One, we are sinners saved by grace. If, if we don't understand sin, the Bible says that we are all sinners, right? So Adam's original sin led to our inherited sin nature, which actually results in our actual sins on a day-to-day basis. Now, I've told you before that the Bible speaks of sin as making us filthy and guilty before God. This was our, our identity prior to Jesus. But hear me. Nothing shapes our identity more now than indwelling sin and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. That is what shapes us day in and day out. So, so this morning, the thing that you are going to be uh, defined most by is the way that you respond to indwelling sin in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. We are sinners saved by grace. So with that war that is going on within you, are you taking God's side against sin or sin's side against God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves as sinners saved by grace. But second, we are sons, not enemies in Christ. That's the good news. See, God's holy and just anger rested on us as we are laying guilty and filthy in our sin. Our identity meant that our destiny was death and destruction prior to Jesus. But all of that has been changed in Christ. We have become adopted sons and daughters. In Christ, we are no longer enemies of God, but sons of God. And here's what that means. When it comes to this kind of picture that we find in the book of Isaiah, it's this. God is no longer after you like an enemy for your sin. He's not out to destroy you. His wrath is not about to be unleashed on you. No, as a believer in Christ, as one of his sons, he sees you as he sees his son Christ. He loves you with that kind of love. And so as you sin, he comes after you as a son. As a child, someone he loves to help correct your course, to change you for the better, to transform you. That's God's disposition towards those in Christ. That's why Hebrews 12.6 tells us that God, he's not a neglectful father. It says there that for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, God is, is out for your good. Now, if you are not maybe engaging with God well, and you're not receiving His discipline in your life, uh, it could be that when hard times come because of your sin, you just decide to sin more, right? Like, man, that sin didn't work. Maybe I need to sin more next time. That'll feel better. But the reality is, if we understand the nature of sin, we understand that sin is actually an apex predator. Y'all know what that is, right? We've talked about that before. Like an apex predator is one where uh, nothing hunts that animal, so a bear is an apex predator. You will not find squirrels hunting bears. Doesn't happen. And in the same way, sin is out to kill, steal, and destroy your life. That's what it is. And what God has done, he has taken that seriously. Because he loves you as a child, he didn't leave you in that sin. He doesn't leave you to that sin. And catch this, he doesn't want you to sin. Sin's not good for you. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you glad. It makes you sad and sorrowful. Sin is deadly. And because he's a good dad, he wants to get you away from sin. And that means bringing discipline into your life. So let me just ask you this. Uh, God does not love for bad things to happen to you. But when bad things happen to you, do you start to, to think ever? Might it be that in this, this pain and the sorrow, could it be that there's sin in my life that God needs to remove with his kind disciplining hand? I'm not saying that he loves to hurt you, but I'm saying that he loves to discipline you. And could it be that right now you're angry at God because of something that's going on in your life? When God says, you're mad at me as your dad, I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to remove something from your life that is drawing you away from me and others. And you don't know where this path goes, but I can tell you the only way that you've been saved is because my son came and died for you. Like That's the nature of God's love for you. Maybe this morning you have a sin that you need to run from, that you need to repent of. In fact, John the Baptist, even thinking about baptism and the baptism that Jesus would bring, said that he was bringing a better baptism, a baptism that would come with Holy Spirit and with fire, right? Maybe thinking of Isaiah, in the sense that when you come to Christ, realize that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, not only making us sons and all of that love and affection that comes with that, but also painfully removing sin from our lives for the glory of God's name. See, the Holy Spirit leads us to kill sin and lead to Jesus. But also, Christians are saints. Christians are saints. We're not just sinners saved by grace. We're not just sons. We're also saints. Uh, Did you know that the word for saints in the New Testament is used for Christians? Right? Like, I know some look at saints and they think like, oh, saints are like that loser football team that disappoints Josh every week. No, it's not that. 
Uh, others of you think like, oh, well, it's like the Catholic Church. They have like super Christians, right? Who get lots of gold stars and then they get sainthood, like Mother Teresa. But the New Testament actually says, no, it's not super Christians. It's every Christian that is a saint in the eyes of God. Do you know what that word for saint comes from? Holy. It's a word for holiness. So when the Bible speaks of you, Christian, as a saint, they are saying, my holy ones, the ones I have made holy, who I'm given my Holy Spirit to, whom I dwell with, those are my people. You are a person who God calls holy. What an encouragement. Fourth, our response to trials and tribulations tells us about who we are now and forever. I think this is really important. The way that we respond to trials and tribulations, brothers and sisters, it says something about God and us. It says something. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have bad days. Can I tell you, I've just had some bad days over the past few months. Bad days. I don't want any of you to see those days. Bad days where I've been broken over stuff that's been going on in our life. Bad days. But you know what? In the midst of that, I'm always reminded of the goodness of God and His love for me. And it's amazing because it's times when I don't want to think about God's love. And yet God's love seems to drag me out of my, des- my despair. Do you know that that's the way that God works with God's people? Like he drags you out of your self-centeredness and about your, your, your wanting to like wallow in your pity. He drags you out of that and he shows you himself. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God does for his saints. It's not just me as a pastor. It's you as, as someone who's looking to be faithful to God. God has given you himself because he promises to his people that he will preserve you to the end. You will persevere because God will drag you out. He will drag you through whatever it is that God puts you through. God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He will not let you forget him. He will continue to work on you, in you, and through you to make his glory known. And catch this, sometimes his greatest glory is going to be made known in and through you when you're going through your darkest moment. Only God can do that. And that's a promise that is made to the remnant of Israel as they are recovering from the mind-boggling spectacle of being made an absolute embarrassment before the nations. God says, I'm not done with you. Your future is not over. It's incredibly bright. And I'm going to restore all things. Just trust me. This is going to make it. You're going to make it to the end. Do you know that God will do that for you? Here's the end. In verses 5-6, to God's glory will dwell with His people. God's glory will dwell with His people. There it says, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion. And over her assemblies, a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flame by fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, I don't know if you caught the new creation language here or the language that's just rich throughout, but God will literally, he says, create something new that reminds us of something old. He will restore something that has been lost. See, God returns to dwell with this remnant. Now, Exodus 13 might come to mind when you hear the description of what God's presence with them sounds like. That's where Yahweh had led his people Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the wilderness. God led them in this way. And God is here with his people again. But instead of leading them through the wilderness, he's dwelling with them on Mount Zion, his holy hill, where his throne is. See, there's some, I believe, strong new creation imagery going on here. In fact, even in this word canopy that we see in verse 5, it comes from a Hebrew word. And it could be that there's really a lot of meaning here. Might be building in some, but this is exciting. See, the same word for bride's chamber is used as this word for canopy here in Joel 2.16. There in Joel 2.16, he uses the same word where he says, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. One author was writing of this, and he says, as the king sits under, as the bride and bridegroom go under a canopy, so the temple mount as a king's throne, the religious community as bride of the heavenly bridegroom must have a canopy over it. You see it? The the scene of a wedding? The scene of God coming to to meet with His people? God protecting His people as a bride being protected by her husband? See, this picture is God's presence residing with His people. God will will no longer merely have His presence over His temple, but over all of Mount Zion. 
Because all of Zion's people will be holy to the Lord. Not just some are priests and some are not. They shall all be holy. And God promises that He will protect them from every imaginable danger that a husband would seek to protect his bride from. Let me just ask you as we we close this morning, holiness is a community project, and are we as convicted and desirous of holiness as God is? I'm not just talking about holiness in the sense of killing sin, but in the sense of that positive aspect of of living unto God and seeing the fruit that comes from obedience. Are Are we excited about that? See, purity... And health in the church should be one of the main things that we are looking for when we choose a church. Is this a church that really values being pure and holy before God? All of us are sinners who desire spiritual health, right? I mean, can we just like confess that? We are all sinners. Health is a goal that ultimately is not received until Jesus comes back. But until that day, don't you want to be healthier and healthier to the glory of God? Don't you want to bring the, the future into the present? Isn't that something that God does in us through His Spirit? See, I believe that a church that doesn't care about purity and helping Christians grow in Christ doesn't love what God does. Some churches discipline for everything. There are abuses. But far more churches neglect holiness in their body, and that's abuse too. Catch this. John Dagg said this about church discipline, which is important for a healthy body. He says, when church discipline leaves the church, so does Jesus. Why? Because a God who loves his kids disciplines them. That's what God does. And it's a community project. In fact, that's exactly what we are hoping to do here. We're about to celebrate communion. A a, a meal where we are actually inviting folks to come down who say we are living in right relationship with the Lord and with one another. We believe we've been reconciled with God and others. Uh, we We have been baptized as a public demonstration of that. We are part of a local church asking to be under the authority of other leaders and elders. Why? Because we believe that holiness is important, and it's not just about me and Jesus. We need a community to do that. We need a local church. In fact, that's what this, this meal actually means, that we prize authenticity and faithfulness and being sanctified day by day, not just on our own, but with others. And brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, the fruit is sweet. The church is the place where God's glory resides. God resides. He puts His glory on local churches. I love what Charles Bridges says. He was a pastor from the 1800s who wrote about the church. He wrote this little phrase that changed my life when I was an intern and read it. It gave me a completely different vision of the local church. I didn't see her as beautiful. And this, this, this uh, along with uh, Ephesians 3.10, changed everything. Here's what he says. The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Yahweh are displayed to the universe. The revelations made to the church, the success of grand events in her history, and above all, the manifestation of the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ, furnish even to the heavenly intelligences fresh subjects of adoring contemplation. You see it? What is happening in the church, according to God, is beautiful and glorious. And He's not the only one that gets it. Even angels and demons look on with spellbound wonder at what God is doing. That's how God engages His church. That's what God is doing in His church. Purity, holiness is beautiful to God. Is that beautiful to you? Let's pray.